Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 211. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss National Treasure as we get ready for the release of Natch, uh, National Treasure Edge of History coming to Disney Plus on December 14th. This is a franchise that's been dormant for quite some time. Yes, with rumors of a third, which I think are still kicking around somewhere. I, this has kind of become like the new Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Like, it, it, it lingers, and it lingers, and it lingers, and there's rumors, and it lingers... And then nothing, and then out of nowhere, you'll get a surprise announcement. Yeah, exactly. That's what this is. But the difference being that they have just done so much less with this than they have Pirates of the Caribbean. And I know for you, that has to be a great disappointment. Well, yes and no. Because I think we made mention of this when we reviewed Sorcerer's Apprentice, which stars Nicolas Cage. Not my favorite actor. I think he's a Looney Tune for the most part, but sometimes that really works like in films like um, Wicker Man or what was that one with Selma Blair, the Halloween one, Mom and Dad. Mom and Dad. Um, sometimes the caginess really works. Um, and I'm always surprised when he gets cast in Disney films, but I really do believe that Disney makes him tone it down because there is not a moment in this film where he goes off the rails. There's one where he tries, and we'll talk about that when we get there, but he never really goes full cage. Um, so though he is not one of my favorite actors, this film, I can't overstate it enough what a staple this was in my household. Um, usually it would start with my dad. He would find it on TV and little by little, one by one, mom, brother, and myself, we would just all trickle in and converge around this movie. And this happened, I would say, every other month. It was like National Treasures on Drop What You're Doing. This was just a film that we loved watching as a family. And oddly enough, I don't think that we saw it in theaters because since more often than not, we would just catch it in you know, like a quarter of the way in, halfway in, I can never remember the beginning. I always forget that it starts on a flashback. And when we put it on the other night to watch it, I was like, what is happening right now? Um, so I'm pretty sure we didn't see it in theaters. What, what about you? What is your history with this one? Did not see it in theaters. Actually had seen the whole film, but not in one sitting until about seven or eight years ago when you and I sat to watch it for the first time because similarly, by this point, I had already like moved out of the house when this film was on in rotation on television. So I would be at my parents' house and the same thing, my dad loved this movie and so did my mom. So it would be like, oh, National Treasure's on. So I, I had seen the whole film but never from start to finish in one sitting. So... um. I know that I was super excited to kind of revisit this because I've always enjoyed it, but I don't have the same history with it that you do. So, does the film hold up for you? Is it something that still holds up for me? 
Are we excited to get more national treasure? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all the new releases. All right, this review is going to be linear this week because... Once you get to the back end of the film, especially, they're sending them here, they're sending them here, this one double crosses this one, and they find this clue, and... Too much going on. Too much going on. So, on that flashback, we meet a young Benjamin Franklin Gates, whose grandfather tells him the story of how in 1892, Charles Carroll, the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence and member of the Secret Society of the Freemasons, told one of Ben's ancestors of a hidden treasure once taken by the Knights of Templar, who later became the Freemasons. The Freemasons hid the treasure from the British and gave the last clue of its whereabouts to the Gates family, who have been hunting it ever since. Ben's fickle father, Patrick, dismisses the notion. Okay, so, flashback. But what this accomplishes so well, and it it has always impressed me, even from the first time I saw the film, was we don't know who any of these people are. Mm-hmm. The historical figures, yes. But we don't know who any of these characters are in this film. But the premise, while it sounds convoluted speaking it out loud, it's very easy to follow, And it does a really good job of quickly introducing you to all of these characters, whether it be Ben or his father, played by John Voight, setting the table for what is about to come. It's truly unbelievable that I forget about this flashback because it is such a strong start. They're not only giving us what we need to know about the history and how that's going to play into the plot, they're also very subtly introducing these characters and their relationship to each other with the three generations of the Gates family. I love that his name is Benjamin Franklin. While they don't say it on screen, um, Grandpa's name is John Adams Gates. And then you have Patrick. So they're already cluing us in that Ben's father is the outlier here. right? And he's not really in on this family tradition the way that everyone else is. Um, You mentioned that John Voight plays Benjamin's father. I think it's also worth noting that Christopher Plummer plays grandpa, even though he's in this for probably less than two minutes of screen time. This just goes to show you how big of a film this was on its release. And I think that people forget about that. This is a Jerry Bruckheimer film and it's coming on the heels of Pirates of the Caribbean. So Jerry Bruckheimer at the time was like the hottest producer in town. And I think that's why there was so much of a budget poured into this film. Um, And you see it, um, you know, they put so much effort into these flashbacks. You'll notice not one bit of CGI in these period recreations of the Revolutionary War. And looking at that now, that's remarkable to me when we have things like Pinocchio, Pinocchio, you know, like even now they're just not making them like they did 20 years ago with big budgets. I'm so glad that you say that because even flashing forward to the end of the film when we get to the treasure room, now that's a CGI. That's all done green screen CGI if they did that today. But I'm glad that you bring up that they don't make them the way that they used to because I was thinking about this this morning as I was like making the coffee and getting ready to sit for this. 
and I, you know, thinking about the time that the film came out, and I said, yeah, right on the heels of Pirates of the Caribbean, and I thought, you know, for all of his warts at the end of his tenure with the Walt Disney Company, this is an era of filmmaking where Michael Eisner does not get enough credit for green lighting projects like this and green lighting budgets like this um, because this feels like classic Hollywood mm-hmm. and it feels the way that Disney did feel for a long period of time where you got accustomed to seeing films like this where it was like there was in the early 2000s and we've talked about it on the show before where Disney sort of had an identity crisis before they acquired Marvel where they catered to very small children and little girls who wanted to see princess films. And they didn't know how to reel in the male demographic other than like doofy movies on the Disney Channel, which most teenage boys are not watching the Disney Channel anyway. So you had to figure out a way to reel them in. And there was a period where movies like this were coming out and they were so good. And and because they were so good and because they had such complex characters and such big budgets and such amazing sets and costumes and this, that, and the next, that I think inadvertently you cast the net out to reel in one demographic but the films were so well done that you pulled everybody in. Right, which is evidenced by my family covering a wide range of demographics, all of us dropping what we were doing to sit down to watch it. I think that has to do with, to your point, tonally, there are parts of this that feel like Indiana Jones. So obviously that's going to hook my dad. I think that's why you mentioned your dad really liked this one too. Yeah, I think that's the draw for them. Um, but you lightened it. You made Indiana Jones family friendly. You made it easier to understand, even with all of the historical elements. I think, you know, because they do sort of spell out that it's a treasure map, that's how you hook the kids because you know it's going to be an adventure story. Um, so it's just really well done. And again, going back to the attic, it starts there because it sounds like, the grandpa is sort of spinning a yarn and Ben is buying into it and he's all excited. And then you have Ben's father being a naysayer. Um, But what I like that they do, and it's very, very subtle. This attic set is so great to clue us in that the Gates family is not crazy, that they're not buying into a myth. Um, They have all of these scrolls. They have all of these maps. So you can see that they've been doing their homework, trying to find this treasure. And In the very beginning, it's like the first shot. They have a, um, it looks like a a seat almost. And Ben flips it over and it becomes a ladder. And to me, that clued me in that they have a very strong, reputable historical knowledge. Because, I mean, this might have just been um, unique to my family and this is probably why we like this film so much. A lot of our family vacations, um, especially growing up in the Northeast, consisted of visiting the president's homes or any historical homes from the Revolutionary War era. 
And every piece of furniture was like that, where, you know, like you see Ikea now, how things fold into each other and everything's about storage and being uh, multi-purpose. That's how they were built back then. So you weren't wasting the wood. And just that little shot with the ladder um, showing that either a table or chair had another purpose that clued me into, okay, this is a family that is really doing their homework and it makes us believe in our main character from the jump. Years later, Ben, now a treasure hunter and historian, is north of the Arctic Circle with his assistant Riley and partner Ian as they uncover the Charlotte, a ship trapped under the ice where they find a pipe that is in fact another clue to help lead them to the treasure. Ben determines that the clue is telling them that a map for the treasure is hidden on the Declaration of Independence. When Ian suggests stealing the document, Ben refuses to cooperate, leading Ian to double-cross him and Riley and leave them for dead in the Charlotte as it burns. Riley and Ben escape and head to Washington, D.C. to try and stop Ian. This is where, if you're not already hooked, yeah. it's impossible for you to not be fully engaged in this film. You find a ship buried under the ice. They have these massive plows that they are just tearing everything apart. They get inside... The treasure hunt is on. The clues are incredible. Like, it is so engaging from the minute this scene starts. I think it was a really smart choice to lead with this set and this idea because I think you would have lost your younger audience had you done something like a museum first if you had started with the Declaration of Independence. And it also, it builds to that. And it needs to build because a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence is going to be so far-fetched. You still need to get your audience on board. And had they started with it, I I think you're coming out swinging a little too hard. Um, Because even this first throwaway line, when we see uh, Ben and Ian in the tractor, um, he says something like, I can't help but think of the the Perry Crossing, I believe it is, like mm-hmm. when they discovered this land. Right. Um, and again, it's simple, but it shows that Ben's not in this for the money. He's in it for the history. He's in it for all of the right reasons. And, you know, it was just a very subtle piece of dialogue, but it, it allows you to trust him and... It's also really setting up what's about to happen with his relationship with Ian. Um, I absolutely love this set of the Charlotte. It's so beautiful. It reminds me sort of of Titanic, the very opening of the film where they do the dive and they're exploring with the cameras and everything. Right. Um, But this goes one step further because it's all frozen. It's just so cool looking. Um, I love how Ben unravels the riddle here. Um, as much as I don't love Nicolas Cage, I actually think that he handles this really well, the way that he like thinks out loud and, and you know, he's going down one path of history and then he realizes, no, that doesn't make sense. It's this way. Uh, I think that's all really well done. Um, and I love how Ian double crossing Ben unfolds here where he's got his henchmen ready to shoot him and it establishes that Ben is 
quick on his feet and he's always going to be one step ahead because he realizes they're standing in gunpowder and he lights the torch. So it's such a great back and forth with the dialogue, but also you're establishing how worthy of an adversary Ian is because for as quick as Ben is, Ian's like right there with him. So it, it's just so really well done. Ian has the money to pull off what Ben can't. That's the thing. That's why he's an investor. And I like that they do the double cross right away. Yes. I, I They could have dragged it out where he gets double crossed in Washington, D.C. later on. I like that they do it right from the jump. They don't waste any time because what it does is instead of wasting time having you trust this character, you now have two teams going to the same place to get the same thing for two different reasons. And I like that it carries through the entire film like that. You're absolutely right. Because had Ben gotten the Declaration of Independence and then Ian double-crossed him, I, I think it would have just felt like an aw shucks moment. It would have worked, but it would have felt contrived, right? Yes. And especially, too, I'm glad you bring it up that um, they're going after it for two different reasons. Again, it allows us to trust Ben because even though he's about to do something duplicitous, He's doing it for the right reasons. Um, and the way that they cut that scene together with both break-ins coming at it from two totally different angles and that there's, you know, two ways of going about this. Um, it's really well done. I'm getting a little bit far ahead of it, though. Yeah, we're almost there. In D.C., Riley and Ian head to the National Archive and meet with Abigail Chase, who they tell that the declaration is about to be stolen and that they believe there is a treasure map on the back. But she does not believe them, so they devise a plan to steal the document before Ian can. Later that week at the National Archives Gala, they scam and scheme their way into the preservation room where documents are kept for maintenance. Ian, meanwhile, has planned a very aggressive snatch-and-grab plan. Eventually, Ben steals the declaration and successfully keeps it from Ian, who then kidnaps Abigail, who is on to Ben, because Ian believes that Abigail has the document after Ben swapped them out. All right, so... Let's talk about everything that happens here. Starting with Abigail, played by Diane Kruger. It's hysterical. And we didn't mention Justin Bartha before, who plays Riley, though he he starts to get fleshed out more here once they get to D.C. He's very much comic relief in the scene with the Charlotte, but we should talk about him here as well, because this character really gets fleshed out. Yeah, in, in the Charlotte scene, he's a plot device because Ian threatens his life. But yeah. um, we're absolutely going to talk about him because, spoiler alert, Riley Poole is probably my favorite part of this movie. But uh, Abigail, but yeah, Abigail, let's talk yes. about it. Um, this scene is so perfectly paced. I love how they're pitching her on this idea. And Ben is trying to dance around it. He He's using all of these big words to cover up that he's trying to tell her there's a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And she's not having any of it. She keeps pressing him. And you know that she's not buying it, but she's somehow intrigued because, again, Ben has the facts to back it up. Um, and I also like how peppered in to Ben's story, Riley is saying, well, this is where we lost the FBI. This is where we lost the Department of National Security. So they've been around Washington seemingly for a day or two trying to do the right thing and let the right people know. 
about Ian's plan. And it really drives the idea that in order to protect it, they're going to have to steal it because no one is going to help them. It's a very funny scene. She's great in it. They're great in it. And I love how as they start to flesh out their plan to each other once they've left her office, I love how smart they are, but how easy it is to follow. I'm not going to say that again because I said it earlier in the conversation here. What has always impressed me about this film is that you've got this heist element mixed with history and it could be so easily convoluted, yet it is so easy to follow at the exact same time. It has always impressed me when watching it. And I love how, especially here, as they start to flesh out the plan of we're going to use this laser, we're going to trip this sensor, and the document's going to get moved to the preservation room, and then I'm going to go in, and, I'm, and you're going to tap into the cameras. It all just makes sense. It really does. And for as wordy as this film can get sometimes... They make it very easily digestible, like you said, but without feeling like it's pandering to children. It doesn't feel like they're turning to the camera and being like, okay, guys, we know that this is getting really complicated, but to break it down for the youngins, this is what's happening. They cover it so that everybody understands. And to me, this is where Riley really starts to shine. Um to me, Justin Bartha should have won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He steals every single scene, not just in the comic relief elements, but for somebody who's not the lead, he just gave this character such depth. Like, you feel like you know him. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but I, I just think he knocks it out of the park every single time. And Riley is such a great wingman because what they're setting up here is that he does try to talk Ben out of stealing it because it is such an outlandish idea, but Riley is never unsupportive because he knows that Ben is going to do it, do this anyway. So he kind of tries to say, you could end up in jail for this. Maybe don't do it. And then within 30 seconds, it's okay. Well, here's how it's protected. And this is why you shouldn't, but being that you're going to do this anyway, I'm going to have to walk you through and make sure that you don't actually get caught. And he's he's on board the whole time, but he at least tries to get Ben to really think about what he's doing without being an obstacle or an antagonist to Ben. What I love about everything that happens from this point forward, specifically once we get into the gala and we're starting to see their plan unfold... There is an element of James Bond meets Danny Ocean that happens yes. here. Um, and, and this screenwriting actually is very similar. It just in, in this respect, it's very similar to Ocean's Eleven, which had just come out around the same time, which was a massive success that spawned a bunch of sequels that were not nearly as good as the first, so they should have stopped after that. Obviously there was a desire from the public for these kind of films. The difference between this and an Ocean's Eleven, though, is that the heist in this is just such a short sliver of the film that they tell you everything that they're about to do, whereas Ocean's Eleven, 
you think you know everything they're about to do, but they really only told you about half of it. Right, because in Oceans, they do it, and then they show you how and what was going on behind the scenes, which I do really love about this movie, but I don't... or love about that movie, but I don't think it would have lent to National Treasure had they done it that way. And this is what I was talking about, too, with the pacing, cutting it against Ian's break-in. And I'm glad that you brought that up before and that you brought it up now because I love watching the very polished, well-thought plan versus the chaotic, blunt-force trauma plan that (laughs) Ian's about to unleash. Well, but I'm I'm glad you make that point, too, because while Ian's is more violent, he still did his homework. I don't feel like he's blindly thrashing his way through this. He, like, yes, they blow a door open, but he says, all right, we've got 90 seconds. So clearly they know what they're up against and they've done their research, even though they're just going about it in a much more aggressive way. Um, But yeah, to me, this thing is so well done. Everything from getting the dye on Abigail's hands, um, not just on the champagne glass to get the fingerprint, they also had to get the dye for her punch code. And that's seemingly a throwaway thing when they're talking about George Washington's inaugural pin collection, but they bring it full circle. It's a plot device. They need it for the heist. Um, The whole thing is just so well done. And even when Ben gets the Declaration of Independence, you don't have a second to breathe because that's when Ian bursts through the door and Ben ends up having to take the Declaration in its entire case, which is funny. And you think there's going to be more of a humor element to it and that, you know, he's going to be walking around with this big clunky thing that's going to give him a headache. But they really use it to lend to the action because now Ian's guys start shooting at him. He knows the thing is bulletproof because they've done their homework. So right. it's now he's using the declaration as a shield. Um, and you get maybe a nanosecond to breathe when we get to the gift shop. But even then, Ben's still on the run. He's got to get out of there with it. I love this whole thing with the souvenir. Brilliant. How they think that he's trying to steal it and he's not but he has to give himself up because he doesn't have enough money to pay for it when he puts it on his credit card. And I I love the souvenir element where now he has the fake document. But it's funny because then he makes it sound like that was his plan the whole time when it seems like he was sort of forced to purchase one because he was being accused of shoplifting at the gala. I don't know. I mean... I don't know that it was part of the original plan to buy it, but I think once Ian got there, he realized that he was going to need a decoy. But it's, again, the pacing, brilliant. He's sweating it out in the gift shop because he knows that Abigail is sort of onto him at this point. He knows that Ian's there, so there's a lot of attention being drawn that he doesn't need, and he's just got to make it out of the building. And then it's so jarring to hear that dialogue. Are you trying to steal that? Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Um, but the souvenir declaration also comes into play because once Abigail gets involved, she ends up with the souvenir. And then it's it's sort of a plot twist because now Ian thinks that that's the real one and he grabs her. I love how it unintentionally gets her involved. Exactly. When all Riley and uh, Ben wanted to do was escape with the declaration. Um, it, it's, you know, 
wrong place, wrong time for all of the right reasons. And I really love the chemistry that starts to get fleshed out even more between Riley and Ben. I think they are just so good throughout this entire scene, specifically in the moments where she gets kidnapped and everything that happens right after, that if you're not fully on board with them as a duo before, you have to be now. Right. Well, I think that's the other thing, because like I mentioned earlier, Riley tries to caution Ben, but he's never against him. And now, because Riley is, just call it what it is, he's an accomplice, he's going to be backing Ben every step of the way, even with pushing him to go see his father. Before we get to the visit to dad's house, yeah. there is another character that gets introduced to, again, scene stealer, but would you not be a scene stealer when you cast Harvey Keitel as the FBI agent? Sadusky? Yeah. yeah. Um, a- again, huge names, legendary actors. Y- you don't just get that with a film that you don't believe in. Yeah, and they have to believe in it too, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, Harvey Keitel's not just going to sign on to anything. Right, and clearly Keitel did because this is a bit part for him. He's not your leading man, and I think he really had some fun with this because he's so dry and so sarcastic, and I just love this intro when uh, the other agent confesses that they did get a report that there was a threat of stealing the Declaration of Independence earlier. Yeah. And not only did they not believe it, they didn't file it. There's no paperwork on it. And Kaitel's just like something effective. Oh, do you believe it now? Is it credible now? Um, so it, it's just such a strong intro. I love it. With the FBI on Ben's tail, they go to Patrick's home to conduct, uh, conduct tests on the declaration where they find more clues written in invisible ink. Knowing they need the silence do-good letters that the Gates family had found, they head to Philadelphia where Patrick has donated them. However, when they arrive... Ian is there as well. Um, so quick scene in comparison to the rest of the films at the dad's house, but there's a lot going on here. I love how Abigail starts to get on board. Even when they're back in the van and Riley and Ben are talking about trying to get back to his house where they have this sanitation room that they've properly set up to examine the document it kind of turned the light bulb. It turns the light bulb on for Abigail because she's like, huh, they seem like they're treasure hunters. And this seems really, really far fetched, but clearly they know what they're doing. And when she sees how much they believe in it, she starts to believe too. Um, so I really like how they're developing Abigail's character. Um, What I also like is that the whole reason they end up at Patrick's house is that they realize the FBI is on to them because of the credit card slip. They can't go back to Ben's house, apartment, whatever it is. Um, And what they're doing is uh, after this car chase, which, by the way, Diane Kruger did most of her own stunts, which is very impressive. um, You're not only cutting against... Ben Riley and Abigail against Ian. The FBI is hot on their tails. They now get to Ben's home. And to me, this is one of the best examples of how brilliant the screenwriting is because 
you're cutting the three parties against each other. And instead of Ben explaining it or Ian explaining it, you have the FBI explain what the silence do good letters are in real time when they find out why Ben would be after them. So it explains to the audience what the letters are without being too heavy handed. And it exposes why the FBI or, or how the FBI is going to track him. My thing with the silence do good letters is I, it almost feels like an afterthought because they kind of just come up out of nowhere. There's no prior conversation that the family acquired them. There's no prior conversation that the family may have donated them to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia it just seems like they needed to, like, gun another Ben Franklin thing in. And it works when they eventually decode it later on. Like, it works and all that. But I, 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 I always forget that this is why they ended up in Philadelphia. I see. Um, but I think it's pretty airtight because the first clue on the Charlotte was the key in silence. I understand that. It just doesn't, but th there's no buildup to it. It's just all of a sudden they get the document and they're like, the silence do good letters. It's like, where did this come from? You know, like, why wasn't this brought to our attention before? They flesh out this great plan and yet out of nowhere, here come these silence do good letters. I don't feel like it's out of nowhere though. I mean, I, because to me, They've been doing such a good job, like I said, of setting up how into history this family is. So I kind of feel like that's a natural thing that they would have at least known about them. But I don't think it's that far fetched that they had them. Especially I think, you know what, it's probably buried somewhere in the flashback when uh, when John Adams Gates is telling Ben Franklin Gates about the night that his great great grandfather um no that was the key lies with charlotte where they passed that on yeah this is what i'm talking about like it it it, it just seems like it comes up out of nowhere i don't know it might be in that flashback somewhere but they're just giving you so much information you're not really you know, it, it's like a don't blink or you'll miss it thing because you don't know how much of a role that that's going to play. But at the same time, his name is Ben Franklin Gates. Like, to me, out of all the history that they know about, I would think they're the most knowledgeable on Ben Franklin. Although, not true because really, Riley knows a factoid about Ben that none of the other ones do. Yeah, when that gets played out later. Um. But yeah, I, I love this scene at the dad's house, too. Um, I think that Patrick is a great obstacle and comic relief um, at the same time because, you know, he's like the entire time he's poo-pooing it, but yet he wants to know exactly what they're doing. And then he's trying to make helpful suggestions like, oh, you need heat? Put it in the oven. No! Yeah. Um, so that's really funny. It's a good scene to let it breathe after the heist. Um, and I also love how Abigail is a true believer now, how she's not saying we're not putting lemon on the back of the declaration. She's saying, no, let me do it because I know how she yeah, is for fully she on forces, board, forces herself into this thing. Yeah. And I love the lemon juice and the hairdryer. Like it seems like it seems like such a basic thing. They've got this whole laboratory set up and yet all they needed was a hairdryer and some lemon juice to ra to act as a reagent. Well, they weren't using black lights in the 1700s. Yeah. 
But I love how it forces her into it. I love how it forces her participation. Um, and then, yeah, as to your point, she then becomes a true believer. So moving on to Philadelphia, Riley decodes the silence do good letters, which leads them towards the Liberty Bell and to Independence Hall, where hidden behind a brick outside of the bell tower are a pair of decoder glasses worn and invented by Ben Franklin. Ben uses the glasses to read another clue on the declaration, but Ian arrives, so they split up to keep the glasses away from the document. Eventually, Ian gets possession of the declaration, and the FBI heads to Philadelphia to track Ben down, where they then apprehend him. So a lot happens in a very small period of time. But let's talk about everything that happens in Philadelphia with the introduction of the Decoder Kid. I love the Decoder Kid that Riley is just feeding dollar bills to do his bidding for him. Because ultimately, they know that Ian is tracking them down. So he just pays this little kid off to do the decoding for him. It's brilliant. What amazes me is that Riley is truly the scene stealer of this entire film. And yet somehow this kid steals the scene from him. He's got so much personality. I like that he's sort of questioning what Riley's doing, and yet he's going along with it anyway. Um, it It's such a great setup. And it works, too, because you know the FBI is watching them. They can't just waltz in there. You know, they've already changed their clothes because they were in their gala attire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for Riley. Um, and now we're just spending money. We don't have money, but we're just going to run yeah, up we're the credit cards well, because the, the FBI's on us anyway. It doesn't matter. No, they're not running up credit cards. They stole cash from Ben's father. That's right. Not that it matters because <laughs> the FBI's on us anyway. All in service of stealing the Declaration of Independence to protect it. I know. The, 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 the premise of the entire thing is just brilliant. Not not that it wasn't up to this point, but like every little thing that they do moving forward, it, you, like you just have to laugh at how tongue-in-cheek the entire thing is. But that's it. I mean, they did a horribly criminal thing, but they managed to justify it because they are the good guys and it what keep it's what keeps you rooting for them the entire time. What's also really remarkable about... Um, this scene at Independence Hall in Philadelphia is you you know they're going to break into another historical landmark. Yeah. Um, and as you said, everything is happening pretty quickly, but they somehow also manage to let the scene breathe because they take that beat once they're ready to look at the map on the back with the Franklin super specs again. Uh, and Ben says the last time this was in here, it was being signed. And I love that they take that moment. It reminds you to stay on their side because they are the good guys, because they appreciate so much the history behind it. And I just think that they did such a good job overall as far as the production of the scene because I've been to Independence Hall a couple of times with my family, with you. I cannot walk into that room without getting goosebumps chills down my spine there is just an energy in that room and they managed to capture it on film to me that's the cagiest of the caginess in this film is when he's just like oh <laughs> i have chills <laughs> you know the, like we talked about it before like he doesn't go full cage but he has a few moments where it's close this to That's me is the one closest he gets to going full cage. Mine is we blew past it before uh, when he makes the toast to high treason and he's 
that running one's good. through the laundry list of how they'd be tortured. That one's good. And he goes, their entrails taken out and burned. And to me, that is the cagiest moment. But this is this is close. And what gets us up to this point is this really wonderful scene for Justin Bartha. The, the whole daylight savings time scene is what gets us up to this point because we believe that perhaps we have missed our window to find the next clue. And of all of the times in the film where Ben is factually correct, it is time for Riley to have his due. I love it. I love how he gloats having the upper hand. It's just such a great Riley moment. That whole scene is really funny, even though it's kind of a throwaway because it is the scene where they're buying new clothes so that they can be somewhat undercover. And he actually, he gets pretty cagey in that scene too, because he's talking to the, to the salesperson. Like they actually give a hoot as to what's going on. He's explaining the history as he's unraveling the riddle of pass and stow. And, um, she couldn't care less. And then Riley, you know, they're, they're, very much under a time constraint, and Riley's like, nope, let me just take this in. Let me soak it all in. Because Riley knows they have time to kill, right? Yes, That's exactly. the thing, which makes it so great. Um, so we go to Independence Hall now. We're at the Bell Tower. How did you feel about the Freemasons, Brick? I got to ask you about this, because we get the clue that daylight savings time and where the sun passes and the shadow and this, that, and then pass and so. We get a Brick that's got the little emblem of the Freemasons on it. So like on the one hand, I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. It harkens back to what the entire premise of the film has been. And the Freemasons are protecting the treasure. But at the same time, nothing else that we find throughout the entire film has a Freemason em like emblem on it. Like I, in a way that I, I, I almost forget that it was the Freemasons that were protecting it. And I wonder if that is, like, an element that was on the cutting room floor that, like, along the way we were going to, like, chase this emblem. It just feels like it's odd that you only see the emblem behind – you only find a clue behind the emblem once and, like, we never really saw it before or after that. I think that's a fair question because for a film that is otherwise so airtight – there are no loopholes in this whatsoever. Not a wasted line, not nothing. nothing. So you would think that they would be dropping the logo in to confirm like, yes, hey, this is a clue. It's not some random thing. But I don't know that you needed it every single time because, you know, they do kind of hit on it at the end a little bit when, um, when Patrick says... Uh, that they've come this far when, when he ends up believing Ben yeah, he yeah, says yeah. they've come this far and he's like you're in the company of some of the greatest minds in the world you figured this out you got here treasure or not this is a huge accomplishment um so I kind of think that applies here where the Freemasons would assume like if you got this far and you found it, it was definitely us. You don't need the little stamp, but there was, I mean, there was a little one on the back of the declaration before they got into the, the invisible numbers. Right. But 
um, Abigail mentions that if there is something hidden, that it would be in the top right corner. So like that, that kind of just trends with what she had mentioned earlier. Right. But there is the little logo. It's not the full one, but right. it's, it's, you know, just done very finely with written, written in ink. Yeah. 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 Um, but you're right. There's not one with the pipe and the Charlotte. Right. Um, there's not one when we actually get to Manhattan. Right. Like there's 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 it just seems odd that it would be like, oh, you found the spectacles. Here's a Freemason logo to confirm it. It just uh, it seems odd. Like I didn't think twice about it when it was on the back of the declaration because of the throwaway line like, oh, the top right corner, it would be here. Oh, that totally makes sense. But the fact that there's just this random one in front of a brick just seemed like there was something else that should have been there that has since gone missing to time. Well, I think that's it, though, because it's hidden in plain sight, which is one of the things that I love most about this film. I think that one needed to have some kind of clue. Otherwise, how would you know what brick it is? Because the light is hitting, it's a sliver. It hits several things. So if you got that close, they probably needed something more explicit to tell you. But even on the back of the Declaration of Independence, you didn't necessarily need the logo there because um, they know that I believe it was nine of the people that signed were also in the Freemasons. And I think the idea is also that the Freemasons were working with people. I don't know that the Freemasons built the Charlotte, but they were clearly working with the captain because he had the pipe. Right. Um, same thing in the church. I don't know if the um, tomb that they go in through, I thought that one had a logo on it but if not i believe he was a freemason he and was. that's they what tell you about it that's what you're supposed to know this is the one thing that's not attached to a person or on a person so i think that's why they did it here and not really so much for anything else can we talk about some of the flaws here though like that that's maybe that's an observation though i'd hardly call it a flaw i want to talk about two flaws in particular one as a spectator of the film and one as somebody that critiques the production of a film. I know I, have two. I know one because I called it out to you, but I'm curious as to what your other one is yes. because we just said that there's like nothing nothing goes to waste in this film and that it's pretty airtight. There's something here that is not as airtight to me. And I understand, and we, we talked about it earlier, that Ian is very much a smash and grab. He's not nearly as polished. And I brought that up earlier, and you said, yeah, but a lot of it's underground. They blew a door off, but they, you know, this, that, and the next, timed out all of this. They did their homework. Which we've kind of now thrown away because I know they put silencers on their pistols, but now they're just waving guns and firing them. In at, the middle of Philly. In yeah. the middle of Philadelphia, which is not all that bizarre anyway. But they're doing it in broad daylight, firing at Riley, firing at Abigail, firing at Gravestones. Ben. Yeah, D like firing them and taking out historical gravestones. 
the fact, and they know that the FBI is on to them. At this point, they have to, right? So, like, it just seems odd that they're hoping to get away with this. Meanwhile, they've done nothing to hide their identities <laughs> at all this entire time. Um, even at the gala at the National Archives. It's not like they had masks on, right? So, like, they're not hiding their identities. They didn't tap into closed-circuit surveillance systems. Now they're just firing guns in broad daylight in Philadelphia. It just seems like for somebody... and Like, we, I understand he's a criminal, and he has said, I don't do everything legally, but this just seems like throw caution to the wind when the biggest fortune on Earth is at stakes with the most sophisticated agency tracking your every move. I will agree with you that they are getting very sloppy with the guns in the middle of a city, in a high, a densely populated area. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you, though. The FBI is not onto Ian at all whatsoever yet because all they know is that Ben was on camera in the gift shop. They think it's him the entire time. They never saw Ian get Abigail with the fake declaration. And if they had, he would have had a fake declaration of independence from the gift shop. So his story checks out there. The camera system in the cleaning room, Riley hijacked that. Right. And they had a fake feed playing. So Ian never pops up there either. He's the untraceable man at this point. Just, but but that's by accident. Ian never planned on hijacking the surveillance scheme. So I'm saying, like, Ian was just going to walk in with his guys without their faces covered and not care whether or not they were on surveillance and steal the Declaration of Independence. Right. And then decode it and find this treasure that they were going to go sell for what we find out is valued later at $10 billion. You know what I mean? Like, you've done too much reckless abandon up to this point to actually get away with the scheme, is my point. From Ian's perspective, they're being very cavalier. But I think that Ian's perspective was the same as Ben's. And, and I actually think it's really good character development here because Ian believes so much that there is a treasure his reasoning is the same as Ben's that I'm I'm going to be absolved of everything from making this discovery I guess I I think that it's different though because Ben's going to be absolved because ultimately he's protecting the Declaration of Independence whereas Ian doesn't care what happens to the Declaration of Independence he's not even an American He's, he's British. <laughs> if there's anybody that should be anti-Declaration of Independence, it's the damn British. Well, that's it. I mean, you just said it. He doesn't care what happens to it. So he thinks the treasure is going to outweigh, well, I made this amazing discovery, but I accidentally tore this important piece of paper that is of, of great importance to you, but very little importance to me. Yeah, I mean... I guess. Um, all right. Production-wise, though, let's talk about a tremendous flub. Big hiccup. Um, Which, to in in fairness to the filmmakers, I never noticed, and had you not pointed it out to me, I never would have noticed it. But I don't even think that this is, you know, a, an 
an eye that's been trained in post-production to see things like this, it stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is, you do need an eagle eye to see it. But to me, it was just really bad. When they, uh, when the FBI gets Ben and handcuffs him and puts him up against the car, um, Riley and Abigail are turning the corner. And when they see him like that, they run back the other way. But, before Ben knows that they have seen him, before they make eye contact and he realizes that they're even there, they're in the shot while he's getting handcuffed. So you see them on the sidewalk and then you it jumps and you see them turn the corner again. It's clear as day. I, I don't think you can miss it. I think and you certainly won't now that we're calling it out. You won't now, but the thing is, I think too many people have just assumed that there are so many background actors because you are shooting in a city that you don't pay attention to the background actors. Oh, and yeah. that's probably why they didn't bother with reshoots or didn't care after the fact because you just see people walking around in the background of the city and you think nothing of it. And I think that that's how they were hoping to play it off because you really can't see their faces, but you can tell by the clothes they're wearing that it's them. Right. All right, moving on. When Agent Sadusky interrogates Ben, he gets a call from Ian telling him to meet him in New York the next day and to come alone or else he will destroy the Declaration of Independence. On the flight deck of the Intrepid, Ben escapes from the FBI after Abigail has paid off Ian to help him escape in exchange for Ian keeping the treasure. But Ian is going to give them the spectacles and the Declaration of Independence. They meet at Wall Street and Broadway at Trinity Church, where we learn that Ian has kidnapped Patrick as leverage. So, I want to talk about the intrepid scene. Other than the fact that it's a great escape, we have a connection with the intrepid that I don't think we've ever talked about on the show because it's like a footnote in our relationship. Uh, It's a footnote in our life, but... I can't help but look back on it and connect it with the film. Right? It was a year before we got engaged. The The cruise that we have talked about at Nauseam on this show where we saw Waking Sleeping Beauty, when we left New York on that cruise ship, our ship was docked next to the Intrepid. And I have photographs of the space shuttle which all ties back around because now we live on the Space Coast. But I have photographs of the space shuttle that was on the Intrepid as a tourist attraction. And when I see this film, the only thing that I can think of is being up close and personal with the Intrepid because, remember, the space shuttle is sitting on it, and it didn't take up that much room. I don't think that people... You don't get the scale or the scope watching this film for how large the Intrepid actually is. So when you think about Ian jumping off of the side of the Intrepid to escape, and they're like, and when Ian, or sorry, when when, uh, Ben jumps off and Ian later says, oh, no broken bones, you don't realize how fortunate Ben is that he didn't get a scratch jumping off of that flight deck. Yeah, one could argue that of all the far-fetched things that have happened to this point, this is the one that really makes you raise an eyebrow. This is more, more far-fetched to me than, than actually stealing, stealing the, the Declaration. Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that he walked away without a scratch. Um, but no, it's 
it's a great scene. Uh, there is a lot going on, but I like that at this point, you really don't know who has the upper hand because it's not the FBI. It's certainly not Ben. And Ian's being pretty reckless messing with the FBI. But the reveal is great that it's Abigail holding all the cards at this point. But is she... She is until she's not, right? And that's what makes it such a great heist film. But I just don't understand why, out of nowhere, Abigail believes that she can trust Ian. I know that she promised Ian the treasure in exchange for the declaration and the spectacles, which from a historical perspective, that's all that Riley and Ben and Abigail care about at this point. But I don't know where along the line you believed that this man was as good as his word. It just seems like you were throwing stuff at a wall, hoping something would stick, and hoping that you were right and that he wouldn't kill or double-cross you. Well, I think that's it, is that she's invested on several levels now. I think priority number one is getting the declaration back at all costs. She knows that she's going to lose her job. She knows that everyone is going to go to jail, but the least she can do is make sure the document is safe. And I think part of it is also that she's obviously starting to develop feelings for Ben. She wants to know that he's safe as well. So this was her way of trying. I guess. So now we are inside of Trinity Church and Ben and Ian use the spectacles to read the message on the back of the declaration because now Ben has figured out that you can read more with the spectacles than he had initially thought. And that leads them beneath Parkington Lane. So they go beneath the church and break into a crypt labeled Parkington Lane where they find a hidden tunnel. They find an old staircase and elevator where chaos ensues, but they end up towards the bottom of this large hole where Patrick tells Ian of another clue that leads Ian to Boston, but this turns out to be a lie. Ian does not know this, uh, so he leaves them trapped at the bottom of this hole, or so he thinks. Yes, they have Patrick now because Ian tries to get the upper hand back by holding him as collateral. Correct, and we had mentioned that before, but what he doesn't know is that at this point, Patrick is just trying to protect himself and his son, but Patrick now is also starting as spec as skeptical as he is, and he still is in the church where in Trinity he's like, and another clue. Dad, shut up. Like Yeah. But I think somewhere in there, other than self preservation, he's starting to believe that perhaps they're onto something. But um the point is it's a very action-packed scene. It's quick. And the the note that I have here, that for a lack of better term, because I'm not a smart enough man, is noteworthy. A noteworthy note. <laughs> this is just enough clues to not get boring. I think after this, yep. if you do more clues, now the film is just getting dragged out and boring like this was enough but I don't think you could have done another after this it is one of the biggest strengths of the film is that not only do they know when to get out of scenes they knew when to pull back because 
for me, it left me wanting more. Like I could have done one more clue, but you're right. Then this movie would have like a two and a half hour running time and it would feel draggy. So they, they dipped just when they needed to. Um, what I really like about this scene, my noteworthy note is um, that even though Ian is threatening to kill all of them at any chance that he gets, they are still so in sync working together from the moment that they break into the crypt and without even talking it through. And I, I, again, I mean, it, it's a movie. It would get a little wordy, but like even Ben is helping Ian's guys to bring the coffin out. And when they get into the um, the the elevator shaft with the stairs, yeah. Um, they know they have to work together in order to survive. Although one of Ian's guys falls and Sean, yeah, he goes. Um, and even Patrick is saying, you know, there's termite damage and rot. I'm 200 years of termite damage and rot. I'm, I'm not going down these stairs. And then Ian threatens him again. But when it comes time after Sean falls to use the elevator system, they all just fall into it and they realize like, you know, I may hate you in this moment, but like, we're just going to get through this. So I thought that that was really well done. It was really well choreographed. It was very well performed because there is still that tension as they're going through all of it. Um, it it's just a great scene. Well, that's the thing, right? They're all dead one way or the other. I or either Ian's going to just go ballistic and shoot all of them, or they're going to fall down this hole. It, it's over for them one way or the other. It's just a matter of, can we survive long enough to continue to outwit him, right? And they do. And I love this flip here that now Patrick is fully on board. And what he says is so believable because he's been naysaying Ben the entire time. So now he sees this lantern. He's been telling Ben, we have to keep everything status quo. And he seizes the opportunity to flip it. Um, but it's just so well done instead of, you know, sending Ben like a wink and a nudge. He just takes charge of the situation. And he also knows that Ian will listen to him because he has been doubtful the entire time. But now he sees this as a clue and he uses his knowledge. It's very believable for Ian to just be like, oh, well, if his dad is saying this, like it must be true. And off they go to Boston. Yeah, so uh, let's hit fast forward here and get to the end of the film. Ba uh, ben finds what he believes is an empty treasure room, leading Patrick to tell him that he is proud of him. That harkens back to what you had mentioned earlier. When Ben looks for a secondary shaft to escape the room, he finds a lock that is opened with the pipe that he found on the Charlotte, which leads them to the real treasure room where they find the treasure valued at $10 billion. Ben calls Sadusky, who is in fact a Freemason himself, um, he hands over the declaration in exchange for turning Ian in and avoiding his own jail time. In Boston, Ian is arrested. Ben rejects his 10% finder's fee, but accepts 1%, which is quite a fortune that he can enjoy with Abigail, because now they are a couple, and they are together. Yeah, all of a sudden she believes him. No. They've obviously built to that moment, but um, she gets the uh, the trophy at the end of the day. Yeah. 
1% of $10 billion. Um, let's talk about that. I love the fact that, again, nothing gets wasted in this film. It all comes back to the pipe that they find on the Charlotte. Yes. It's absolutely brilliant that it all circles back around to that one piece. At the end of the day, that is the key to all of it. And the line, the secret lies with Charlotte. It's so good. Which it's not just that that's where the journey begins with the ship. It's how it ends. It's so brilliant. It is. And I we mentioned it earlier as well. The set is just so incredible with the treasure room. Today, it would be horrific Disney CGI mm-hmm. that the movie going audience for some reason or the next has just come to accept and I refuse to. It would be horrific CGI. It's just so refreshing to see that at one point in time, they actually had beautiful sets in Disney films. Well, I think that this is a rare occasion where CGI and doing a special effects shot that's that large would have actually cost more. Whereas you could just get a whole bunch of props and spray paint them gold and you're good to go. And I'm sure half of that also came from existing Disney, you know, it might have come from uh, the Backlot Tour. It could have come from the warehouse. I'm sure a lot of that was existing. But regardless, um, what I really appreciate is that it is exactly what Ben promised when he was trying to pitch Abigail on this treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence in the first place. And he said uh, it was something to the effect of monetary and historical value. And it's not just that they're, you know, sitting there rolling in a bunch of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. It's, you know, uh, the first thing that Abigail sees, the scrolls from Alexandria. Spaceship Earth. I (laughs) wrote Spaceship Earth as a note. I am so glad that you brought that up. Of course you did. But it's things that, you know, we as the audience are going to recognize and appreciate too. Um, And it also lends to how they tie up the film And part of Ben getting out of this is that he says it belongs to the world. It belongs to the countries that they initially came from. It it belongs to the public who wants to see it. Right. Um, Just just a really great way to tie up everything. Okay. um, Final thoughts on National Treasure. I mean, Uh, it's going to go without saying, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that a modern movie audience will look back on this and think that it's kind of cheesy and probably feel that it's Betty, uh, that it's very produced, but I don't care. I I've loved it since the first time I saw it. Uh, is it rewatchable? Yes. Unquestionably for me. Um, and I still love it now. I think it's great. I mean, a Nicholas Cage movie that won me over, it's gotta be good, right? Um, I'm giving this one a near perfect. I'm actually going to give it a perfect. Like, I sh- it should be near perfect because of a couple of the flaws that I mentioned before, but the hell with it. This is like classic Hollywood filmmaking. It's what Disney needs to go back to. It's it's it, it, it doesn't rely on an overabundance of special effects. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's fun. It's exciting. Call me a stan. I don't know what that means. If you are the young <laughs> audience, I don't want to know what it means. Just go and play on TikTok and go pretend to be an influencer. Like, this is what filmmaking should be. This, when I go to a movie theater and I want to escape for two hours to two and a half hours, or in the case of Avatar, when we go see it next week, it was like three and a half hours. 
like, I want to go escape. Like, all of the things that so many people sit there and pound the table for with the overused and yet over-desired term, I think, at this point of fully immersive. Fully immersive. I need everything. Disney, universal, fully immersive. You know what? This movie is fully immersive. It is. And, and, and this is what we need more of. I'm glad you bring that up because I would have loved to see this as a ride. There is still time. Let's see what happens with the Disney Plus show. Okay, but we want to know what you have to say about National Treasure. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio, or you can email us monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget, you can use the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to save 10% on her greeting cards for the holidays, her prints, her recipe cards. See everything that Kelly has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. As if the holidays are not depressing enough, let's cry over Rocket Raccoon. Because we (laughs) now have the first trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Out of nowhere. Yeah. We knew that this was going to tug at the heartstrings of the Marvel and Disney community because you were going to see Rocket as an adolescent being experimented on. But you see him as a baby being pulled out of a cage. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure, this is just my prediction, I think Rocket's going to die. (gasps) I do believe we're going to lose Rocket. I think we lose Rocket and Groot, actually. I think we lose both. I think... Like, Drax, Mantis, and Quill are probably the only three that are going to make it out of this film. I think Rocket and Groot, they're just a team. I think they go together. So, I think that that is ultimately what we're going to see. It is a heartbreaking, and yet at the same time, incredible trailer that we got out of nowhere. It really is I mean, I think everybody was expecting this at Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, I should say. Um, And then D23. And then they never gave it to us. It was for Comic-Con in Brazil that they released it. And I didn't even know that that was happening. So when they dropped this, I I was absolutely stunned. Um, It's a great trailer in true Guardians fashion. Um, Great song. Um, to your point, yeah, the, the visuals are very jarring, especially when you see Rocket. Um, I do agree with you. I mean, they're going to go for the jugular, right? So I, I think it probably would be Rocket, but I don't think it will be both him and Groot because Groot has tried to sacrifice himself so many times 
I feel like to see him do that again and then actually go through with it for the for the rest of the team, um, it's been done before. We keep thinking we lose Groot and then he's always back. So I feel like there's always going to be a way for him to come back. I, I think that maybe Groot's in jeopardy and Rocket sacrifices himself for Groot. Well, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to find out. Cinco de Mayo. We're going for my birthday. Yay. And we're going to have to drink after to drown our sorrows. Yes. Because we're losing Rocket and Groot. But we want to know what you have to say about the Guardians trailer. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Don't forget as well, to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com, and for links to everything related to the show, it is always online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.